0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Oath Keepers were central to the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. Today, an Estes Park man who used to churn out the militia group's propaganda, cherry-picking news stories. You rewrite
1: those stories, inserting, in this case, the Oath Keepers' name into them. Kind of like a commercial where you get that strong emotional reaction and you associate a brand logo with it. And uh, it seems to have almost a short circuiting effect, I think, on the critical thinking skills.
0: At first, Jason Van Tegenhove saw himself as a journalist, embedding with the Oath Keepers to tell their story from the inside.
1: I have to acknowledge that I began becoming radicalized myself over time. And in some ways, I didn't even see it myself.
2: I'm Sam Brash, a CPR climate and environment reporter. Covering stories like the Marshall Fire is how I met a family rebuilding with earthen blocks, something
0: they say is perfect for a warmer, more flammable world. You can shape it, you can change it, you can build it into something, and you can form it into something, and it it doesn't burn. Climate change, it's scary, but sometimes the solutions are right under our feet. Invest in climate solutions coverage at cpr.org slash climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The founder of a right-wing militia group will be sentenced soon. Stuart Rhodes, leader of the Oath Keepers, was found guilty of seditious conspiracy for his involvement in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Our guest today knew Rhodes, worked for him, and even let him live in his basement. Jason Van Tatenhove of Estes Park has a new book, In it, he details his time with the Oath Keepers and his break from the organization years before the Capitol siege. The book is titled The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keepers, and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Future Civil War. Jason, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. People may recognize your name because you testified before the January 6th commission on the inner workings of the Oath Keepers and why you left. And I want to start with some assumptions about your story, because it would be really easy to see your book, your testimony before Congress and think this is a militia member who had abandoned his dreams of overthrowing the government and now seeks to repent. But that's just like that's not at all the story of your time with the Oath Keepers, is it?
1: No, not really. And I really felt it was important for my own personal journey to get the story out there, to write the book so that I could tell the story in my own words. And it really is just kind of a slice of, of my family's life during that period of time. Um, I kind of went into the, the misadventure with a notion to write a book. Um, I had been reading a whole lot of Hunter S. Thompson. I had been moving through his omnibus and, and you know had been very struck by his Hells Angels novel and, and thought that this might be a, an opportunity for me to write a similar novel that pertains to our generation. So that kind of was part of the genesis of that journey.
0: I'll just say Hunter S. Thompson, also known as the gonzo journalist, the notion that someone writing reportage would get um, really kind of ensconced in the subject matter and write something that felt like, well, part memoir, part reportage, and you call this a misadventure. Uh, so you began it as an adventure and it became a misadventure. Uh, maybe speak to that evolution a bit.
1: Sure. I had moved from the Fort Collins area up to Butte, Montana about a year before Bundy Ranch had kicked off. And Bundy Ranch is
0: kind of my first mile marker when it comes to, to this adventure. And I was. Let me just say that's the 2014 standoff in nevada over cattle grazing permit fees right
1: yes it was it was 2014 and that really is what kicked everything off because that's when we saw Clive and bundy calling up all good patriots to to go join him in the the desert of nevada and square off against the the federal government and i i kind of started hearing this i think it was originally on fox news but you know the big coverage was coming from Alex Jones InfoWars. Mm. And I just remember thinking, this is something happening. This is something big, something in my gut was saying, I, I want to get out there. And, you know, as a storyteller, as a writer, I feel the only way to truly figure out what's happening is you got to go and, and boots on the ground, be there and and figure out who the players are and see what the dynamics are and and just see it with your own eyes and experience it. And, you know, I'm very influenced by participatory journalism. I think that it's just something that spoke to me um, in in this, the the stuff I was reading.
0: But at a certain point, you kind of become the media person for the Oath Keepers. Um, I do. I do. Yeah.
1: And I don't want to gloss that over. I, I feel it's very important that. I have to acknowledge that I began becoming radicalized myself over time. And in some ways I didn't even see it myself until we kind of hit some thresholds that there were lines I just couldn't cross. But, you know, I, I, I want to take responsibility for that. And the work I've been doing since then, I've really been trying to, to um, recognize the influence that I had had, you know, try to make it right in my own mind.
0: You write in the book, I think that a lot of the people who are involved in the Patriot Movement are a little lost, looking for answers. And when the real world doesn't make much sense, they turn more and more to conspiracies. Connect that with Stuart Rhodes. Did he see that in you? Does he, I don't want to put words in your mouth, does he prey on that,
1: he does. He certainly uses it, and that's part of the formula. My my original title for the book was not "The Perils of Extremism." That was a decision made by the publisher, along with putting my face on the cover. <laughs> I would have never done that. The original title was "The Propagandist" because, really, what we were doing was creating propaganda. You know, and and I'll I'll be the first to admit that I am a conspiracy theory junkie. Um, there's just something about it, you know, from my early adulthood. Growing up in Fort Collins, I spent a lot of time around the CSU campus. I would ingest a lot of alternative documentaries that would come through the the student center. Um, And, you know, some of the ones that had a very profound impact were the documentaries revolving around the Waco incident and then Ruby Ridge. And part of the messaging that was being put out for Bundy Ranch was that there were sniper teams in the hills around the family ranch, and it was just a matter of time until we saw another Waco or Ruby Ridge happening there. You know, obviously that was the messaging that was being put out, but as far as Stuart using that type of conspiracy theory and propaganda, that's a part of the formula. You know, if you go back and look at what the initial kind of mission statement was of the Oath Keepers, it, it revolved around 10 orders that we will not obey. And of course, the the namesake of the Oath Keepers is the oath that law enforcement and military and politicians take, you know, swearing to uphold and protect the Constitution from, you know, enemies foreign and domestic. So it's playing on that, but it really revolved around what was called the Jade Helm conspiracy, which was a conspiracy that during the Obama era, really kind of took hold and it it revolved around the notion that the UN was actively doing trainings with the U.S. Army and and National Guard to round up, generally speaking, right-wing conservatives, uh, gun owners, and, and put them into, you know, some sort of concentration camp in decommissioned big box shops like Walmarts and such. And really, we see that cyclical pattern where you know, whatever the hot conspiracy theory of the day is, that's where they're going to insert themselves into that messaging and kind of weave themselves into
0: the story. That strikes me as opportunism, Jason.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, this is, uh, that, that's exactly what it is. It's a good grift. You know, these are, these are formulas that are kind of laid out originally by a writer. He wrote the book Propaganda, and it was Edward Bernays who actually was a nephew of Sigmund Freud. Um, but it's, it's a, a, a manual, basically, of how to create propaganda. And so what you do is you look for that strong emotional reaction that the low-hanging fruit is really anger and outrage. You find the news stories through news aggregates and, and Google bots and such, and, and you find those really hot-button stories that people are having a strong emotional reaction to and then you rewrite those stories, inserting in this case the Oathkeeper's name into them, kind of like a commercial where you get that strong emotional reaction and you associate a brand logo with it. And uh, it, it seems to have almost a short circuiting effect, I think, on mm. the critical thinking skills.
0: Yeah, it it's fascinating you mentioned this because I, I had a conversation. This is some time ago about Russian intervention in social media, and that when you see something, a tweet, for instance, that gets your goat, that fills you with rage, the first thing you might do, as opposed to reply, is to wonder whether you're being manipulated. And I hear a lot of that in what you just described there. Uh, Absolutely, And and, and th- frankly, the arts and the science of what you did as the propagandist, which might have been the original title of this book. Yet in some ways, you didn't quite fit into this group. Uh, you write that you dressed differently, wearing a lot of punk rock shirts, acted differently. You say you identify as queer. Were you welcomed by this crowd?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, actually I was. And, you know, I come from a very left household. You know, my grandfather was one of the abstract expressionists in New York City back in the 50s. You know, I, I was kind of raised by the the remnants of, of the beatniks of, of the New York City scene, where it wasn't uncommon to rub elbows with militants, but it was just, you know, this was a, a much further right along the spectrum version of that. Huh. Originally, I think I kind of got radicalized because... I do have a healthy distrust of the government and I think there's plenty of reason to distrust the government. I mean, I think there are many historical pieces of evidence that lead me to that. Now I don't, you know, obviously my views have evolved quite a bit and, and, you know, I was never one to bring a firearm to any of these things. I was bringing a microphone and a keyboard and a camera, but I certainly became radicalized in that. And part of that was, you know, the media I was ingesting as my job and just moved to to Montana. And I'll be honest with you, things weren't going so great for me either. I was a bit lost. And, you know, I had sold a a successful tattoo shop I had in the Fort Collins area. I uh, moved my family out there and with plans of using those funds to start another tattoo shop in the, the Butte area. But the economic realities and the, the cultural realities, you know, it just wasn't the same place as Northern Colorado.
0: Butte's a tough town. I mean, it's seen better days, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's beautifully haunted, but it's it really is, it, it's a haunted place.
0: You know, there's been this storyline that undergirds extremism. I think it has undergirded Trumpism as well, which is that, uh, economic unease is what drives these folks. There's also a lot of pushback against that, uh, and th- that it might be racism or misogyny or homophobia that drives folks. Uh, what I think it
1: all starts with poverty, though. I, I do, and that's from my traveling around and then my own story. Um, traveling around the country and, and, you know, meeting some of these folks. Because you got to understand with, specifically with the Oath Keepers, we saw a, a creep towards the hard right. You know, before Bundy Ranch really happened and kicked off, I would describe kind of the actions that I would hear about later on. It, it almost seemed more like an anarchist book club. There wasn't direct action. They weren't doing you know, armed standoffs where they were pointing guns across at, at federal law enforcement agents. But once Bundy Ranch happened, and this kind of, t- you know, returns to this, this notion of grift or opportunism, um, when Bundy Ranch happened and I was I was there, I remember overhearing conversations that they had raised close to thirty dollars to $40,000 in a week. And I think that really changed Stewart's direction that, you know, he saw an opportunity there and he also saw just how much camera attention nationally and internationally it garnered, which led to greater membership. It also led to greater donations. And so that I think really, in, in Stuart's mind, steered him towards standoff after standoff after standoff because we, in pretty quick succession, went from Bundy Ranch and then up to Josephine County, Oregon for what was called the Sugar Pine Mine standoff.
0: It's fascinating because it does strike me as something of a traveling show, you know, like the, the opportunism, I think, that you reflect on.
1: And, and I'll be honest with you, I had I, never traveled much previous to this. And, and part of the draw was I got to go all over the country and, and meet all kinds of people. And, you know, I was flying to work some days in a old Vietnam era Huey that was piloted by, you know, Vietnam era pilots. So, you know, there was kind of an adventure
0: aspect to it. Is it like a lot of guys who just kind of want to play G.I. Joe? (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah. and No.
1: Um, You know, it it certainly is a a part of it. And I think one of the reasons, you know, Stuart kind of focused in on the veteran community is, is because they're looking for that camaraderie again and let's face it our veterans have not been treated well at all when they return home historically and and uh, that continues to this day so when someone like Stuart comes in and says hey we have this community um, and we want you to plug into it we're going to go out on missions again and these missions are important to the future of our country that resounds with a lot of people, you know, especially if, if things aren't going as they had planned necessarily. They are missing that camaraderie that they had in the service, and this helps to to foster that to an extent. Now, what I will say is the membership that I had experience with largely did not have all that much combat experience. And the, the guys that did have real combat experience, you know, those, those people are fairly squared away. You know, they, they have a, a pretty short fused when it comes to, can I say, I guess I can't swear on this. I would, I would say BS. So, you know, they would come in and, and pretty quickly see that this pretty much a cult of personality hmm. and, and a lot of the actions didn't match the words that Stuart w- was presenting. So they would quickly exit stage left, but there was also these cottage industries that kind of sprung up around the militia movement up there in the Pacific Northwest specifically. So you had actual war fighters who were providing training, actual real military training wow. um, from guys with real life experience to more of the non-combat veteran communities, you know, more of the armchair warrior types.
0: Uh-huh. What do you think Stuart Rhodes, who, who I want to point out was I think Yale educated, right? I mean, it's interesting you, 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 yeah. Discuss this as beginning as a libertarian book club, um, but uh, what do you think Stuart Rhodes saw in Donald Trump? I think
1: he saw opportunity, and that was that was not always the case at first. He was not very excited about Trump. Actually, the day of the election, he wasn't even going to go vote. I was actually the one that encouraged him, saying, "Hey, you're the the leader of this you know veteran political organization, as you term it, and and you need to." get out there and vote. So at first that was a case, but I think over time he saw it as an opportunity. And I, I think his, his, his dreams for the Oath Keepers, you know, is to create this kind of paramilitary force that given the right political circumstances could find authenticity and, and legitimacy. And I think he, he pretty quickly saw a route to that with the trump administration um and i think that's evidenced by the security that was provided on january 5th and and just the integration with the january 6th events that uh obviously there was communication that was happening between the administration and and these different organizations it may not have been direct but it you know i think there was some form of communication happening and of course i had been removed from this for about I don't know, five years at the time. That's right. That's so right. that's just me speaking hypothetically.
0: We're recording this conversation just after a first in this country, uh, the first time a former U.S. president has been indicted. Um, the case involving former President Trump is separate from the January 6th siege. Um, but I, I do wonder how you see the indictment playing out in your former circles. Well you know it's kind of a wait and see moment at this point in time
1: but we know that trump is directly messaging to not even just the national groups like he did part of what i talk about in the book is this kind of fringe element that kind of surrounds the the more organized national groups because the national groups are are fairly good at policing themselves at one point they you know if if actual nazis and racists were to show up they would kick them out. That's changing now. We're seeing this evolution where we have this creep to the hard right, where racism is becoming much more blatant and much more accepted. Christian nationalist views are, are being pushed out in the open. So we're just coming to a more extreme place, a more extreme reality. And, you know, it was very concerning for me to see Trump have his, his first official rally in Waco, Texas, um, because I think now he's speaking directly to those fringe groups that, in, in my opinion, are, are more apt to perpetrate violent actions. You know, I think there's there's some danger there.
0: You, you eventually spoke in front of Congress about your time with the Oath Keepers, which uh, I'll reiterate, ended years before the January 6th siege. You explained the moment you left the organization about homophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, uh, that in the end you couldn't abide. The
1: straw that broke the camel's back really came when I walked into um, a grocery store. We were living up in the uh, very remote town of uh, Eureka, Montana. And um, there was a group of core members of the group, uh, the Oath Keepers and, and some associates. And they were having a conversation at that um, public area where they were talking about how the Holocaust was not real. And that was, for me, something I just could not abide. And, you know, we were, not, we were not wealthy people at all. We were barely surviving, and it didn't matter. Um, I went home to my wife and my kids, and I told them that I, I've gotta walk away at this point. I, it, I don't know how we're gonna survive, or where we're gonna go, or what we're gonna do but I just can no longer continue and put in my resignation.
0: Say more about that instance. Why was that the straw that broke the camel's back for you? Well,
1: again, it's easy to try to pigeonhole members of of a community as being racist. And that's not always the case. As I had mentioned earlier, I could get behind being somewhat anti-government or skeptical of the government, you know, and, and that certainly became more extreme over time. But I was, I've never been a racist person. I was not raised that way. I mean, I i have letters of correspondence between Martin Luther King and my grandmother. You know, I come from a blended family. My my cousin and aunt are Jewish, and we would have blended holidays, you know, growing up as a kid. My granddaughter these days is, is Latino. So for me, I just, that was not something that in, in my core being that I, I could deal with. And um, so I it, it didn't matter that I, I didn't know how we were going to survive and how we were going to live. We were going to figure it out as we went. And I just had to walk away from it.
0: What did you do as a propagandist that you carry some shame around today?
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm really... With what I've been doing since then, and, and, you know, a lot of people don't know what I have been doing, but but since then, I've been working with what I would term as kind of top-shelf journalists, working the the extremist beat, helping to connect dots. But since January 6th in my testimony, I began doing work. I'm now a, a, a consultant with Georgetown Laws, ICAP, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. I have another major university that that I'll be um, working with as well. But I do talks all over the country. You know, I'm, I'm working with some of the people that, that are really asking some of these big questions as to how do we avoid this in the future and try to get to a better place. So, you know, I realized that I played a part in this. And, you know, it may have just been words that I was using, but I think those words actually are, can be more more effective and more powerful than it in bullets because, you know, ideas are something that take root and they grow. And, you know, I certainly played a part in planting those seeds. So now I'm trying to replant a new crop of seeds because I I really think a lot about the world. My daughters are going to inherit. And I may have January 6th watching that in high definition in real time on my couch with my daughter's, really was a gut punch for me you know it it made me feel physically ill because that was really the realization that i had some influence on the through line from bundy ranch to what we saw on january 6th where our democracy you know there was an attempt to to take apart our democracy and and how our electoral process works i mean it was a failed coup in my opinion and I have to make right on that. I have to try to, to do better. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm really good at screwing up. I'm really good at, I, and I think a lot of us are. Yeah, you know, I've, sure. I've made support life decisions, but part of that life experience is, is learning from those and trying to do better and trying to to create a, a, a better future because no one's coming to save us. No one's coming to fix this for us. We have some really big issues that we're grappling with, whether that be... Climate change and the political divide and violent extremism—the wheels seem to to be falling off as we're we're moving forward. And and you know, America's not perfect, but it's the best we got. And we've made some real real progress in the last sixty years or so. And right now, I think we're in danger of of losing that progress that you know my grandparents contributed to, your grandparents contributed to, and we've got to figure out how to keep that from happening and how to move forward again and get to a better place than we were. So that's on us. And, and, you know, that's on me.
0: Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Jason Van Tatenhove of Estes Park has written The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keepers, and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Future Civil War. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters, and we'll be back in just a bit. With a storied place, Bears Ears. This is CPR News and KRCC. He's kind of epitomized what Negro League baseball was all about.
1: You played for one reason, you loved baseball.
0: Black history, baseball history, and William Bebe Richardson in the latest Colorado in depth wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Like a giant outdoor history museum, that's one way Andrew Gulliford thinks of Bears Ears National Monument, just 30 miles west of the Colorado-Utah border. Gulliford, who teaches at Fort Lewis College in Durango, has spent decades exploring the area's canyons, mesas, and desert expanses. His new book is Bears Ears, Landscape of Refuge and Resistance. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Why are these, what, 1.36 million acres of remote, often difficult-to-navigate lands in southern Utah so captivating? To you and to so many coloradans who recreate there
2: bears ears national monument in southeast utah is remote in a way that colorado canyons are not and with our current snowpack and the winter we've had it's such a relief to go into the canyons and to hike along the cliffs and there's very few people one of the great things about san juan county utah at three and a half million acres, it's only about 18,000 people. And there are only two stoplights in the whole county. In fact, one of them blinks. So really, there's only one (laughs) four-way stoplight in the county.
0: That is delicious to you, I guess, as someone who has been to any number of natural places where there are hordes.
2: Well, and, you know, when I think about driving up and down I-25 and trying to head westbound on I-70 on a Friday afternoon, yes, I love that amount of solitude, silence, uh, the dark skies at night. The first national park that is a dark sky park is actually Natural Bridges National Monument right in the heart of Bears Ears.
0: What is it about the landscape itself, besides it being somewhat void of people, that you think is so entrancing.
2: So Bears Ears represents 11,000 years of human history. And there are ruins, there is rock art, there are palpable signs of ancestral Pueblo almost anywhere, and that's really exciting. I love to hike in the mountains, I love to be in the high country, but I feel much more connected in canyons where I can turn a corner and find A potsherd or a ruin, and really feel that it's about self discovery. And I think that's very much a part of the BLM's national conservation lands. And Bears Ears National Monument is the first BLM national monument that was really advocated for and championed by five different tribes. Mm. So that's a first. And it really shows. It's a very special place.
0: Oh, I love the nuance of that. In a way, what draws you there is the relative lack of people, but also the peoples who call it home and have called it home.
2: Yes, there's both a prehistoric presence and a historic presence for Native Americans. That presence includes at least, uh, well, 11,000 years, but 5,000 years of rock art, very easy to see and document along the San Juan River, uh, near Bluff, the southern edge of Bear Sears. And then uh, the basket maker people who were the first farmers, the ancestral Puebloans who came later and built the cliff dwellings. Navajo herders who moved into the area by the 1400s and 1500s fled there to avoid Kit Carson and the long walk which forced so many Navajos out into Eastern New Mexico. The Ute presence is palpable, and at one time, there was even an attempt to make all of San Juan County, almost all of the county, into a Ute Indian reservation. So the tribal history is very real, very palpable, and it's just fun to hike there and walk there, camp, backpack, because you just feel that sense of the ancient ones.
0: It has been more than six years since Bears Ears was designated a national monument. Why hasn't it been more curated? I mean, there isn't a Bears Ears Visitor Center kind of formally or even well-marked Bears Ears trails. There is a
2: Bears Ears uh, Education Center in Bluff, but it is not run by a federal agency. It's run by the Bears Ears Partnership. And part of that is this new philosophy of the blm that if they're going to have national monuments and national conservation areas and there are a lot of them in colorado and all over the west they will not build things inside the monument they will make use of the small towns and the villages close by Mm. and so that will happen but no there's no federal funding yet for any kind of visitor center there's a few little signs along the road that say welcome to bears Ears." but no real maps, no real trail markers. And those of us who spend a lot of time there want it to stay that way. We want people to understand this is the kind of landscape that you don't just you know, Google some sites and go visit. You have to learn to earn the view. One of the hotel owners in Bluff says that people come by, they want to see Bears Ears, but they don't want to look. And it's so important to take the time to look, slow down, turn off the cell phone, and really try and understand this really interesting landscape.
0: Well, this is also partly about honoring the sacred nature of these lands to indigenous folk, too, right?
2: Yes. And so under President Biden, the Bears Ears landscape was reinstated, the full monument boundaries were restored, and there is a new management plan in the works with, for the very first time, real tribal involvement. And that's not out yet. It'll probably be next year. And then we'll see what sort of things the tribes want us to do or not do. And uh, that'll be very different, too. It's, it's pretty exciting.
0: The size of Bears Ears has been something of a seesaw. Uh, we'll talk about that. But a pretty basic question here, Andrew. How did Bears Ears get its name?
2: Bears Ears are two little... Bumps on what's now called Elk Ridge Plateau. It should be the Bears Ears Plateau. You can see them from 100 miles away. And there are many stories about it, but I'll use the Navajo story where a young girl was seduced by coyote. And after that, she turned on her brothers. She killed two of her brothers. And the third brother came after her, finally killed her and She had become a bear. She had become fierce and ferocious, uh, defensive, and the third brother finally kills her. So the bear's ears are really this maiden's ears, and then the blood and the bones are other geographic landmarks, including Comb Ridge. So that's a fascinating story, somewhat similar to Devil's Tower, uh, also called Bear's Lodge by the Northern Plains tribes, and a similar situation only with Devil's Tower, It was a brother who became aggressive against his sisters. And so it's interesting, you know, the different types of bear mythologies. And in the case of Bears Ears National Monument, it's so embedded in Native people's culture that it shows up as Bears Ears in eight different languages.
0: Okay. And so that speaks to how central this place was to so many indigenous people. uh, What made it so special for them?
2: Well, the whole idea of refuge and resistance, I think, is really important. That Bears Ears became a refuge for prehistoric peoples, historic peoples, but it was also a place where you could go in resistance. And the Navajos did, the Utes did. So, you know, part of it is just the sacredness of it is that it was always remote. Beersers was never in the middle of anything. It was always on the edge, the edge of the ancestral Puebloan world, the Northwest edge, the Northwest edge of the Navajo nation, uh, the Northern edge of the Utes in that part of uh, Utah. So now what's fascinating is having been on the edge for hundreds of years, now it's in the center of this big political debate over private land, state land, public land, federal land, ownership management and for the first time tribes really want to get involved Mm -hmm. so even though the place is physically remote it has received a lot of publicity there was a photograph from one of the sites on the cover of national geographic in november 2022 so it is a place that is definitely getting on the roadmap and it's so exciting to have tribes helping to make decisions as to how it should be interpreted
0: The history is fascinating. The layers, layers and layers. So early skirmishes between the most ancient inhabitants of Bears Ears were followed by Mexican raids, by U.S. troops trying to root out Native Americans, uh, incursions from Mormons moving west. Then the looters came. You write about one unusual period of pot hunting, cowboys looting Bears Ears sites, with the government's blessing for the 1893 World's Fair. Tell us about that.
2: 1893, there is a general depression, recession across the American economy. Cattle prices fail, sheep prices plummet. And so there's no money in livestock. And cowboys, not so much sheep herders, but cowboys realize they can get paid for digging up pots and baskets and so forth. And so that the sort of the start of Mesa Verde, but it's also the start of looting in Bears Ears, particularly in Grand Gulch. And so one of the interesting things that President Biden acknowledged in his proclamation was that the very impetus for the Antiquities Act, yes. signed into law in 1906, the impetus for that came from Bears Ears and trying to deal with the pot hunting that was going on there. But the real reason for this rush to dig things up was the Chicago World's Fair, so collections were acquired to be put on display in a stucco sort of plaster parish building on the Midway in the White City in Chicago, and that really made a difference. It helped start the Colorado Historical Society, it increased an interest in ancient peoples, and unfortunately, it increased an interest in Potheim.
0: There is still looting going on, though. Right? I mean, I just feel like that—that that is a reality in the West, wherever there are artifacts. If, if there are artifacts left.
2: Possibly 90 to 95 percent of prehistoric sites across the Southwest have been looted, but it's possible that there are still artifacts there. I have found arrowheads, spear points, other things, and I rebury them on the spot. So the real question is, can you have something as big as bear's ears at one point Three plus million acres and leave it as an open museum. Hmm. Can we teach and educate Americans and our international visitors to leave things alone? And that's that's a real challenge. Blanding, Utah has a superb museum, the Edge of the Cedars State Park Museum. And as you walk into the building, the first exhibits you see are artifacts that were discovered by visitors, hikers, turned into the Bureau of Land Management and now. On display. So you know, if we honor the right things, if we do the right things, if we visit with respect, hopefully we can tone down the pot hunting. And sometimes, though, just the presence of visitors will deter pot hunters.
0: Uh, speaking of not leaving things undisturbed, <laughs> Bear's Ears was once the site of nuclear weapons testing. <laughs>
2: Yes, yeah, that's a little little known part of uh, Western history that's pretty interesting. When Canyonlands is taken from the BLM in 1964 and reestablished as a national park, there were weapons testing going on near Green River, Utah, all the way down towards White Sands. And so Athena weapons and other grade weapons were launched close to Interstate 70 and then sent hurtling southward some of them landed up in Bears Ears, some of them wound up in Canyonlands. There's at least one ATV trail in Canyonlands right on the Bears Ears border where it's called the Missile Trail. And huh. you drive your ATV out and here's a crumpled rocket.
0: Didn't the military set up bleachers so that people could watch the launches?
2: Yes, they did. Near, near Blanding.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: they also would bring in missiles for football games. So you know, at halftime, you could you could watch the missile sort of crank up on the truck. So it was the Cold War. And the other thing that's very important about Bears Ears is the proximity of uranium mining, uh, mining down in Monument Valley, milling at Monticello, Utah. So that culture in the 1950s, 1960s, all the way into the early 1980s, was not only about uranium and uranium prospecting and some of the stories and myths about that, Uh, but also a mill, and then, of course, the radiation poisoning, the deaths related to cancer. And so that's part of the Bears Ears history. And to this day, the last uranium mill processing site in the United States is right on the edge of Bears Ears. So there are serious environmental considerations in addition to these cultural ones.
0: Uh, Speaking of uranium, it was President Trump, who split Bears Ears in two, shrunk it by about 85%, opened it to oil and gas and uranium development. That follows President Obama's designation of Bears Ears as a national monument in 2016. Uh, You have mentioned the changes under President Biden. Do you think that Bears Ears is just going to continue to be this kind of hot potato?
2: Well... I hope not. And we'll see. There are lawsuits that are still being brought forward by some of the big outdoor recreation companies, Patagonia, the Navajo Nation. Those suits have never been settled. They're in the court in Washington, D.C., in federal court. What would be exciting would be to have a win in a district court in Washington, D.C., a win on appeal, and then have it not heard by the Supreme Court. So that would settle things in a uh, judicial manner. But the problem is the Utah State Legislature, even though it makes millions and millions of dollars on its national parks and national monuments, is suing the Biden administration to backtrack on beers here. So unfortunately it's politically still unsettled and whether a final decision will come through the courts or through the executive office, we're just not sure yet.
0: What does it tell you, though, that the very state in which Bears Ears is situated uh, is on that side of the fight?
2: Well, but again, that's just one perspective. And actually, a poll, if you were to poll the citizens of Utah, they are in favor of the national monuments and in favor of Bears Ears. Certainly, most of the native peoples in San Juan County, Utah, are... So it's just political posturing, something we have to deal with here in the 21st century. And the posturing does not reflect how people actually feel, nor does it reflect the economic opportunities that a new national monument would bring to remote San Juan County, Utah. But it's not the old West anymore, Uh, it's the new West. And the new West is bringing different things, different people into really remote places like Bears Ears.
0: Let's wrap up with the, who visits Bears Ears nowadays. Talk to me about the license plate scene, well, Andrew. That,
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the, joke in, the joke in southeast Utah is they know it's spring when the license plates turn green.
0: And what that <laughs> means
2: is when, when, when we drive over from Colorado, you know, we have the green and white license plates. So So then they know it's spring.
0: The point is that it's a popular destination for Coloradans, uh, given its proximity to uh, the western border.
2: Absolutely, it's about 110 miles south of Moab, and so you know the mountain bikers and the jeepers. It's going to be Easter soon, can all you know go to Moab? But people who want a more reflective experience, who want to get to know a landscape, uh, Bears Ears is big enough to absorb any adventure you want to have.
0: Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Historian Andrew Gulliford of Fort Lewis College in Durango. He lives part-time just over the Utah border in Bluff. And his book, 30 Years in the Making, is called Bears Ears, Landscape of Refuge and Resistance. And that's our show for today. With thanks to these adventurers. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
1: Andrea Dukakis. Rachel
0: Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Shane Rumsey. Chandra thomas Whitfield, And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lawful. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.